The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Well, welcome. Um, we're, like Dale said, great to see new faces here. And um, um, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the, uh, I'm, I'm an anonymous elder, right, Dale? Am I anonymous? Yeah, I'm not on the webpage yet, so I think I'm anonymous. <laughs> Um, and I'm not taking that personal, by the way. You can keep me off, so I'm flexible there. But um, welcome. We're, we're really grateful you guys are here. Um, we are doing um, an interesting passage. And again, I, I always, when I get up to teach sometimes, I kind of squirm because sometimes when you come in God's Word, you open it up, it's not comfortable. You know, it, it's, it's challenging you to say, are, are we living in alignment with, um, in, in light of who God really is, is our life reflecting that? And that's a painful question because I come up short nine out of ten days. The truth of the matter is, is that living as a broken, fallen human being in corrupted f- flesh, this, this is a challenge. So um, we'll, we'll leave it there and um, we, we will go. I have this, so I'm going to give you um, the first title of the, the teaching this morning. But it's really not the teaching that belongs on the web page. So the teaching I'm going to give you an opening is, is it's captioned that one line. Just one line. Um, and we're very simple outline here. We have the king's command, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 11, 1 through 11, the king's command. And then um, the second section, will, which would be much shorter, by the way, is the king's confirmation, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 11, 12 through 15. So simple outline, the king's command and the king's confirmation. So with that, let me open just a couple simple questions kind of get our radar up. Have you ever read a book or a document or some type of report and and you find one sentence or one line that just jumps out? It makes all the difference. And a lot of times when you're just going through material in life, you're reading an article or something, there's usually a point or a theme or, or really that one line, that key to the document or the letter or the article that makes all the difference. So we're in DOXA, for those visiting, um, bivocational. We have jobs on Monday and we serve on Sunday. So I think we get the best of both worlds. That's not making it harder. I I think it gives us perspective to um, what we were trying to live out on Sunday when you put it into application on Monday. So I'm a lawyer on Monday. I don't play one on TV. Didn't sleep at Holiday Express. No, I'm just a lawyer. I'm okay with that. Um, and um, so, you know, it's interesting. I was going through some paperwork recently. I was reading a medical report. And, you know, you're looking for what's going on here. And obviously there were some injuries. And I'm reading about scrapes, abrasions, fractures. And then there's a line that jumped out. And the line was this, neurologically devastated. And I was like, whoa. Um, so if you're not a medical term, neurology deals with the brain or the central nervous system. And devastated is obviously an accurate word. So you'll understand it a little better when you realize how doctors use words. You know, you can come in writhing in pain and the doctor's like, um, moderate complaints of suffering. You know, so unless there's a really big puddle of blood, the doctors really don't make strong, exaggerated words. So when you see the words neurologically devastated, you know somebody's had a horrifically bad day. You know, you're going to recover from a broken leg, but that type of injury, you're not coming back up for air. 
I was reading another uh, medical report, interesting, a lot of medical reports I read, and the blood plasma level, this was entertaining, or the blood alcohol level was 287. So it's like, what does that mean? What's 287? That's not a breath sample, but if you want to convert the breath sample, you put three decimal points over from the beginning. So it's a point, if you were to blow this blood sample, it would be a point two eight seven. So let's put this in context now. If you blow, you get pulled over and you blow a point zero eight. There's an inference of intoxication. So now do the math here. It was point two eight seven. All right. So that's in it. Oh my, what is it? That's uh, close to four times the regular limit. I'm like, well, I don't need to know much more about this person. They were pie-eyed. And now it becomes really relevant if that person who gave the blood sample had been operating a motor vehicle 45 minutes earlier. That's what you call the game changer in the lawyer business. So, you know, that's all I need to know. We can move on here. Nothing else to see. And you go about your business. So I do this just to kind of point out and illustrate. When we read God's word... Oftentimes, we'll get an idea of the landscape of what's going on here, but there's usually that one line. You know, if, if you send the torpedo in the right place and it hits the ship, it sinks it. It's done. And oftentimes, when you look at God's Word and you start to take it apart, there really are what everything else hinges upon a particular line. And that makes all the difference for us as believers, that if we can grab a hold of that piece of biblical truth and stuff it in our pocket and pull it out on Monday, it, it doesn't change something. It changes everything. And so as we go through the passage this morning, let's, let's look for the line. That doesn't change something, but that changes everything. So I want to pick up in context, try to put this in context. Last week in chapter 10, we know that Samuel anointed Saul as king. He, he gave a little bit of prophecy to confirm that. Um, and we read the Holy Spirit had come upon him. And we read that God, in uh, actually in verse 9 of chapter 10, that God gave him uh, another heart or that God changed his heart. And it's interesting as we go on later on through the course of this book, you're going to see, sadly, things go sideways uh, pretty quickly with regard to Saul. And one of the questions that comes up often in Scripture, you know, people ask him this study, is, was Saul really saved? And I want to give you just a free piece of information here. In the end of Samuel, his life is coming to end, and he summons, excuse me, Saul, he summons Samuel back from the dead. And Samuel um, is, is there asking questions, and Samuel prophesies this. Moreover, the Lord will give, also, uh, give Israel also with you to the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And if you wonder where was Samuel at this time, he was with God. And so if this time tomorrow, I mean, he's going to die. Him and his sons are going to die. That's the prophecy. But if that same time tomorrow, Saul and his sons are with Samuel, where does it say they are? And I think the answer is with God. I was just thinking about that because we saw that change of heart last week. And I think, you know, as this passage goes on, you kind of scratch your head. And you won't have to scratch your head, in my opinion, at least. That's my argument. I'll leave it there. So here we have our new king. We knew that Saul is good-looking, he is tall, and he has money. But that will only get you through the front door, right? Sooner or later, you're going to have to open up your mouth. And the question becomes, is Saul going to prove his calling? And that's really what we kind of see, the acid test 
comes today. Will he rise up as God's appointed man to rule over the nation of Israel? So we're going to pick up. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash said, Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. So, so Nahash is, we know he has a, he's an Ammonite. The Ammonites have some real history with Israel. They have proven to be a true thorn in the side of Israel. Now, do you know where the Ammonites came from? If you trace this back into the lineage, this, the Ammonites resulted from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. Ben-Ami was one of the two sons that, his, uh, that Lot's daughters conceived. They got him drunk and said, we got to move the family line on. And they conceived, the daughters had two kids. And one was Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Ammonites. So you see, it's, you know, when you look at the history of God saying, don't do some things or do some things. And when you don't do them, how things go sideways for generations, and so you have Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites. Now, a little fun fact, question. Do you know who the other child was? It was the Mo Moab. And so you look over the history of Israel, the Ammonites and the Moabites, just huge problems. And so that's, that's where Nahash is coming from. So it looks like there might also be a little revenge going on here, although you didn't need revenge to have Nahash pull this one. Um, back in Judges 11, the Ammonites had been defeated under the judge Japheth. So it might be, look like they're, they're exacting a little refrange, a revenge here. So if, if you're not new to the Bible, you go, wow, that's not really a good deal, gouging out everybody's right eye, Right? So if they make this treaty, they would be their slaves and they would be subject to them, but they would also have the protection and provision of the Ammonites, although you're their slave. But, it, but they'd add an extra layer on to say, we'll gouge out the right eye of everyone. And part of that was a tradition in battle. When you'd overthrow a people in the battle, they would, as a rebuke and showing we've crushed these people, they would take their right eye out, which would render them useless in battle because a lot of times there was archery going on and spear throwing. And if you're missing your right eye, how far do you get in battle? And the answer is not far. So... Not, not really good here. They want to take the right eye. Verse 3 picks up, the elders of Jabesh said to him, that's Nahash, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So, you know, when you read scripture sometimes and you're studying it, you kind of scratch your head. Why, why are they asking for a week? Well, I know personally if somebody said, I'd like to gouge out your right eye, I would like some time to think it over. You know, just, no, okay, here, we'll bend over. No, 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 no. We're, we're going to try to thwart this plan. Obviously, I think they're looking to see um, the people of Jabesh to see if they can get a better offer from somebody, right? Well, let's see if somebody's take my left leg or something, not my eye. Um, the word seven's important. It's a big deal. Seven is a biblical number of God's perfection or of completeness. So their thinking is, let's give God a series of days for him to seriously consider if this is what he really wants to do to us. Now, I'm speculating that they were, that was their motivation, but it makes sense when you kind of think that through. 
More so, why would Nahash, if, if you've got an enemy that you can just crush there on the spot, why would you give him seven days? And the answer is, is we're at the end of, uh, there was a period of 300 years at the end of Judges where there's complete anarchy that starts taking place in the nation of Israel. And when you end the book of Judges, it says that they had done in their own eyes what they seemed was right or good. So you've got a completely immoral people, and there is no standing army. God would periodically raise up judges like Japhesh to do some business, but there was no king, there was no structure, there was no ruling army to go and oppose these people. So Nahash says, there's no one coming to your aid. And he feels pretty confident that's the case. So what seven days if you come back and let me take your right eye eye out after seven days? I don't have to even raise a finger to fight you. You just roll over and play dead until I take your eye and then you're disabled and subject to me. So it makes sense that if he really believed, and it tells you the state of Israel at this point, if he really believed there would be no threat or opposition, nobody would come to their aid. And that's a horrifying thought when you think that through. That you're God's chosen people, there's 12 tribes, you're living in this promised land, yet your brother... Your enemies are so confident that your brother will not come to your defense. And it tells you the age in which Israel was living in. So, with that, we pick up verse 4 and 5. With the messengers came to Gilbeth of Saul. They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and they all wept aloud. It wasn't like, let's get up and do something. They're like, oh, that's bad for them. And again, it affirms the state of their defenseless at this time in the nation. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. So interestingly now, Saul's hometown was Jabesh Gilead, his ancestral hometown. So he's got a little personal stake here, knowing what's going to happen to his people here. So what is Saul doing when word reaches him, by the way? This is really interesting. This guy's king, right? Last week, didn't they make him king? And now you have the king out in the field plowing his fields. Well, think this through a little more, and it makes perfect sense. When they made him king last week, did they have a palace to place him in? Did they have a throne to seat him on? Did he have a standing army to rule, and did he have a list of agenda of kingly duties to be performing? And the answer is no. There was nothing. Yeah, I'm king, but I'm kind of hungry, and I'm going to need to feed my family. So he goes back to doing what he was doing. It's just as a default. And it may have been even a, a statement of humility that, that, that Saul says, I'll wait till God exalts me and lifts me and places me in that throne and builds the palace. But he's out plowing the field. So we pick up in verses 6 through 8. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, probably the ones he was using in the field, and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying... Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So the Spirit comes upon Saul. So you go, well, wait a minute. Wasn't Saul given a new heart and saved last week? Yeah. So there's a little bit, if you're new to the study of the Bible, I want to clarify, because this is one of those theological stumpers, if you're not familiar with Scripture. Throughout the course of the Old Testament, God's Spirit 
would come and depart from people that today we would look at and say, clearly they're saved. These are people that if at any point in, after they, the time they met God and was professing God, we believe they would have went to heaven. King David is the, the picture of this. Um, King David prayed this prayer. He said, do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So throughout the course of the Old Testament, God's Spirit, although you might have experienced a new birth um, conversion, God's Spirit would come and depart and go from particular individuals throughout the course of their faith. Now, in the New Testament, that's completely different. Um, Post-Pentecost, that when there's a, there a credible profession of, of faith or a new birth experience, God's Holy Spirit indwells the believer from that point forward. Now, there are terms that we use filling up, which might, might be a greater empowerment or use or guiding of the Spirit. But generally speaking, theologically, in terms of doctrine or truth, God's Spirit indwells us, period, from that point going forward. And I'll give you a scripture on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 121 says this, Now it is God who makes both us and uh, you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So it serves as this guarantee. Now, if the spirit left, what would it say about the guarantee we have in Christ? And the answer is not much. Jesus talked about this as well, John 16, 7. It said, very truly, I tell you, it is for your own good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus was saying that this thing that's going to take place upon my leaving is the spirit is going to be a manifestation and spirit of my physical presence with you. She'll have it all time. And he said this is actually better than having him around. Uh, John 15, 26, Jesus said this again. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So this spirit comes upon Saul not as evidence of salvation, but as an order to empower or to give him the wisdom in leading the people and the people truthfully to take him seriously. So Saul cuts up his oxen, sends the pieces of the animals throughout the nation of Israel, says to them what happens to your, this is what happens to your animals if you do not come and fight the Ammonites with he and Samuel. So it's kind of, I'll put this in a better context. People in this day and age made their living from, generally speaking, agricultural pursuits, most of which was farming and raising animals. So if you lost your oxen, you had no means or no livelihood. So Saul basically sends the message, if you don't want to take some time away from your means or livelihood, I'm going to take your livelihood away. And that's, he's being flexible at that point, I guess, the way we should say it, diplomatically speaking. So typically, Israelites maybe 100 miles away would have said, oh, that's nice, but he's not coming this far. Yet we read a line that kind of changes it. And we hear the words that the fear of the Lord or the dread of the Lord, as words are used interchangeable often in Scripture, the fear or the dread of the Lord came upon these people, and that changes everything. So at this point, the, this, there's a conviction that i got to do something here. And I, and I looked at this word, and, and I started thinking about this. Um, many of us Christians, especially in America, I'll say this, equate this fear of the Lord with a wrathful God. And, and we kind of take this position that, well, now that Jesus comes, Jesus loved me so much he died on the cross, that everything is cool. 
this fear of the Lord is really something relegated to the Old Testament people, or it's something that you should be concerned with if you have not had the experience of the new birth. And that is absolute heretical thinking and belief. That's heresy. It's, it's unbiblical doctrine to say that the fear of the Lord is no longer relevant to us as Christians, and I will lock that down this morning. So just a, a little bit of heads up. Without, think about this. Without a healthy fear of God, there is no respect for him or his authority, let alone grasping the need to sacrificially obey him and fight sin. The fear of the Lord profoundly affects us how we live as Christians. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord profoundly affects us how we live as Christians. And, I'm, and I want to tease this out a little bit. Um, how, how many of us, if you were raised in a home where you didn't have an abusive mother or father, how many of us had a healthy fear of our dads growing up? All right? So think this through. You do something stupid and you get busted. And your mother says... Wait till your dad gets home. Now, I can tell you what happened to me. I'm like, oh, I start sweating. No, mom, just beat me. My mom's in the back now. And you just throw myself on the ground. Take my eye, right eye, mom. Whatever happens is going to be not as bad as when dad gets home, right? And so you sweat it out. And, and he comes home and he whips your little behind. And never once, thinking this through, did I ever contemplate as he's whipping my behind for my treasonous act that I don't think my dad really loves me. Did you ever think that if your dad was, you're getting a whipping, as a, a deserved whipping as a child. Did you ever sit there and go, my dad really mustn't love me? No. This is what you thought was an appropriate response from an authority when I violate the terms and conditions of the household. And think about this a step further. What is it like when you live in a home where there isn't that authority? And I say, welcome to America. Hello, hello. That if you don't have a respect for your father and your household growing up, you're not going to have a respect for the cop that pulls you over. I mean, I see stuff today that I go, didn't somebody teach you to shut your mouth? You know, isn't there a way you speak to those who deserve a little respect and authority? And it's non-existent in certain times in America. You look around and you scratch your head. And is that a good thing? Somebody who loses the fear of, uh, for the respect of authority that's in your life. And so magnify that times 10. And that's what happens when we lose our fear of God. When we lose our fear of God, we have no regard for sin. We have no regard for his holiness. We have no regard for his sovereignty. We have no regard for his power. Because it's a little, well, it's not going to affect me anyway. You see, my fear is correlated with my tender flesh on my backside. And when it starts to sting, I respond in obedience. And I do it promptly, as a matter of fact. And so when there is no threat, what do I do with regard to authority? And the problem is, is that that authority initially is necessary but the authority, if you live in a home where there's not authority tethered to love, the minute the kid leaves the home at 18, they say, the heck with the authority, and they go ballistic. Do you start to see something going on here and how God shows us in practical application what happens in our homes as a picture of what happens with him? And that, that the fear is an essential component, but the fear is part of the package that denotes security, structure, order, and behind all of it, love. And that if I can't get that, God becomes, guess who? Santa Claus. And then you look at the state of our church and you go, oh, no surprise here. So 
Let, let me break this down a little bit more. Um, and you go, well, Jonathan, you've broken it down pretty good at the moment. But I, but I think that how this plays and who God really is is pretty amazing. Because fear, if we didn't have fear, they would put you in a padded room. There was a guy up in North Carolina, I always hear the story of the guy had his head injury, and it knocked out the fear. There was nothing that stopped him from putting his hand on a hot stove. There was nothing that stopped him from walking out in the street in front of an oncoming truck. There was nothing that stopped him from saying something stupid to somebody three times bigger than him who would beat him into a pulp. And the problem was is that our fear allows us to preserve our, our very existence by saying good or bad. And if it's bad, we can, we can gauge it appropriately and then manage it rather than barrel into it and wind up dead or in a puddle of blood. So just to kind of play this out, the, the fear and dread are very similar words. And actually, the ESV and the New American Standard Bible use the word dread here in this passage. King James uses the word fear. NIV uses the word terror. And the New Living Translation uses the word afraid. If you default back to the Hebrew word fear, yira, it's a word that describes a feeling that we have an anticipation, an anticipation of pain or danger. But it also holds something or someone else in high regard. So there's different meanings coming into play here. Hebrew tradition holds that there are three levels of fear. Now watch this and think about this as I give you these levels of fear, how it plays with fearing God, okay? The first level of fear denotes an unpleasant punishment or consequence. This would be akin for the same feeling I have for the South Carolina Highway Patrol when driving down Business 17, which there's a certain place where it's 35 miles an hour and I always want to drive 50, all right? But I have this awareness of law enforcement. You know, I have an awareness of law enforcement every time I get in the car, by the way. And it's not a, oh, I need to be careful fear. It's just an awareness. They're out there looking for me. They're waiting for me, right? If, if you drive fast, they're waiting for you. If you drive the speed limit, you don't ever worry about them waiting for you, do you? You have nothing to fear. Oh, isn't that a revelation? But if you drive eight miles an hour with the speed limit and you push the envelope everywhere you go, always driving that fast, because most of the time I hear you have to be driving 10 or more over the limit to get pulled over. Right, unless it's the end of the month and they got to use up their last couple of tickets, right, Dave? Well, I don't know. <laughs> He's shaking his head. Uh, so with that, having said that, I have an acute awareness of the highway patrol. Why? Because there's some unpleasant consequence if my behavior is inappropriate. Very simple. Base level fear. Now think this one through. Base level fear. Second level of fear denotes a concern or anxiety over breaking God's law. So now all of a sudden we went from a fear of consequence to a higher authority or law here which would naturally motivate people to do good versus evil. Now, this is where it kind of changes because it's not so much I'm cowering and concerned about something. There's another level of fear that motivates my actions to conform my behavior to something good versus something negative or evil. This is the fear. This, this will come in alignment to the marriage covenant. See, uh, if, if you're going to be married and happily married, you have to invest and do good to your spouse. If you don't, my experience has been that you're unhappily married, right? Anyone married in here know that? That's good truth. For the unmarried people here, it's a free one. I just gave you a free one. Like if you get married, treat them well, they'll be nice. If you treat them bad, they will not be nice. Um, so the, and there's still a, a strand of fear in there which says that if I violate this covenant of love or of this law, 
that she'll divorce me. But it's, it's almost a weak illustration because in the spiritual domain, if I violate this principle, I face eternal damnation. All right? So that's the second level, this concern or anxiety over breaking God's law, which would naturally motivate us to do good versus evil. Now, the third level is I think where God wants us. But I don't think we can get to the third level without going through the first two levels. And watch this. The third level, and this is Hebrew tradition. Now, you don't get this, you know, reading the Bible. The third level concerns a fear that has a profound reverence for life that comes from right seeing. Meaning we can discern reality. If you look out there today and if you could see true reality, you would stand to nothing but awe and amazement at the wonder of the power, the majesty, and the enormity of who God is. You'd sit there just your mouth would drop open and you'd drool all over yourself and you'd go, wow. And you would stay there until somebody takes you away. Because I know that because that's how I see it when I'm having a lucid moment. You just look at all and you're just like, wow, wow. So it's a concern, it concerns a fear that involves a profound reverence for life that comes from right seeing, which through it we behold God's glory and majesty. Majesty, We are able to behold and exalt God rightly. And here we are elevated to a level of reverent awareness, holy affection, genuine communion with God. And so if you think about this, here a bad behavior wouldn't be a sinful act we would see it as betrayal to our first love or to a beloved. Now, let me if, think about this. If we can get you to that point where offending somebody, it would be a violation or a betrayal of your first love. Who would be saying, gee, well, going, uh, doing this right or wrong, I should be careful about a negative consequence. You'd, if, if, do we contemplate in a coherent sound mind ever betraying our best friend? Would you even contemplate stealing from them or doing something harmful or hurtful? It's beyond reason to think that I would go there. This relationship is on a totally different plane. And if I needed something, I could go to them and say, I'm in need, and they would bless me with it. There's no, I would never have to go and threaten, coerce, manipulate, or take something from them because their love and affection and the nature of that relationship would allow everything they have to be at my disposal. That's what God says for the mature believer in fearing God, understanding the enormity of that being at our disposal. But we got to get there at that sanctification process through the first two levels I mentioned, which makes perfect sense to me now. We see, the, the principle is this. We see sin in the same proportion that we fear God. Think about this. We see sin in the same proportion that we fear God and break the fear down into the three models that I gave you. See, would you ever think about stabbing your best friend in the back if you were feeling good, healthy, and had your wits about you? That would be like, how could I, you couldn't do that to somebody. And the more we grow through this thing called sanctification and Christ-likeness, the more we see that my sin isn't just wrong, isn't crappy, isn't offensive. It, it, it's a hurtful act against a holy God, against a best friend. It's treason against those we love, that love us. And you start to see that I would choose not to offend God or sin against God, not because I don't want a consequence, but because it would be an offense against the heart of the one that I love and that beholds me. And that's when things start to change in our life. 
You know, I can fight sin on a given day. And sometimes you can fight it well. And we need to strive to fight it. But as we grow through that process, the goal, I think, where God wants us in fearing God is to come to that place where there's a romance, where there's an affection and a regard for the holiness, the sovereignty, and goodness of God. We see sin in the same proportion that we fear God. And if we have an inconsequential view of sin, guess what? We have an inconsequential view of God. Sorry. Live with it. And I don't like reading those words because when I'm having a poor day, I write it off. Boy, you want to talk about knowing the mercy of God at the end of those days? Blows me away. So the fear of God falls upon these people and their priorities are immediately rearranged. I love that. And and it's interesting, by the way, Saul's message of the rallying the people is done within six days over the whole nation. That's pretty quick messengers, by the way. Uh, That's not high-speed internet, but it's pretty good. It's moving now. It's going through the tube quick. And we read that the people of Jabesh Gilead had the seven days. We knew that from earlier. So you're under a tight schedule. How many people show up? 330,000 people. This is the greatest rallying army since the days uh, of... um, um, Gosh, uh, I'm forgetting the uh, the guy, um, Joshua. Couldn't believe that's eluding me. Since Joshua, uh, they they came into Israel from Egypt. Pick up verse 9 through 11. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thou shalt you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Understatement of the biblical century there. No no, right-eye gouging. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. This is to Nahesh. By the way, do you know what the word Nahesh means in Hebrew? Serpent. Just a little fun fact there. All right. So, therefore, the men of Israel said, tomorrow, to Nahesh, the jerk, tomorrow we will give ourselves to you that you may do with whatever seems good to you. The Hebrew part of that, whatever seems good to you, is whatever you see right in your own eyes. It's almost a play on words there. To say, well, you want to see what's in your right eye. seems what's right in your eyes or right eye. Um, so, and the next day, Saul put the people into three companies. They came into their midst of the camp in the morning uh, in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of day. Those who survived were scattered so that no, no two of them were left together. And boys, they're an amazing victory there. So I wonder this question for us today, you know, two, three thousand years later, three thousand. I wonder what would happen to the church in America if we were roused from our sleep, from our spiritual slumber. And we were to rally and appear as if one man to do the work of God. And I, you know, I kind of just scratched my head. How, how many of us, if, and, and you know, Saul wasn't nice in his request. He didn't say, oh, brothers, if it pleases you and you have the time, come and fight with me. He said, you're with me or you're not, and I'm with God, and this is really isn't a choice matter. And how many of us, if we got that call today, would say, I'm busy plowing my field? And then sometimes we wonder why God takes the field or the plow, and we're sitting here going, well, you know, it rings through my ears. I was involved in a ministry where I recruited people throughout, um, recruited people from, to serve in this ministry throughout the church community. So I had a really good sampling of the church community. And it was back in, oh, four, five, six, and seven. And I can't tell you how many men I went to over those years where I said, would you, are you being led or called into this ministry? And I was, there's a part of me that looks over my shoulder for doing it for 10 years, 
where I really believed that at certain levels I could discern God calling people. And I had people come back to me and tell me, yeah, I felt called, but no, I said no. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's up with that, God? And that's part of my personal testimony too. Some things were real clear to me, and I'm like, no, God, I got a field to plow. And he persists, well, God, um, would you plow the field for me and I'll do it then? And then you start negotiating with God at that point. You know, and then you wake up one day and say, oh, this is stupid. You don't negotiate with God. You'll take care of the field. Here I am, Lord, send me. And uh, you go in a perfect world, hopefully. But I remember tons of men that wind up losing everything. They were too busy to serve in a ministry, and then, then the, the earth got scorched. I watched people go from living in million-dollar homes to two-bedroom condos. They were too busy to serve. And these are men who had experienced new birth. I was clear, certain they were saved. And I guess the question for us is, are we misleading ourselves when we tell God we don't have time? You know, we all have 24 hours, right? I hate that. When somebody says, well, I don't have time, I go, oh, that's a lie. Don't, don't lie to me. You have 24 hours just like me. The question is, what are you going to do with it? That's the question. And so Saul is hard here. He says, you know, you, you're going to have some idle time if you don't want to spend some time with me. And I wonder, I struggle with that because there's a part of me some days when I look at the church and I see great things happening within the church. And I don't mean docs. I mean the collective body of Christ serving the king. That's the church. Let's not mistake in ourselves and believe for a moment, doxas the church. We're a small part of the big body that's doing his work, right? So with that, I wonder about that, about how we have our priorities. And I just struggle with that. So it looks like they rise up. What would it look like if we rose up to protect our brothers, our sisters, those being afflicted, those being defeated, those being persecuted as a one man? And I got to be honest, if we, it would be a big man and you'd swing some weight. They did it back here with 330,000 people. You got some muscle in that ministry. And I think that's the way God intends for this, the body, to work as well. I wonder about that because we come up on 4th of July, and I, and I wonder, was this nation created to have a bunch of self-gratifying people doing their own thing and having lots of money and fun? Or was it established to honor a holy king? And it's just a question. So the king attains a great vis- victory for Israel. They're back at the end of Samuel. We knew there were some people who weren't happy about his kingship. In the closing of chapter 10, we read, but some worthless fellows, I love that, worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? Well, ha, ha, ha. They're probably licking their wounds at the moment. And they despised him and brought him no present. But Saul held his peace, it says he, but it's Saul. So how will these men now respond to his kingship? And we read, Saul's given great wisdom here. But the people said to Samuel, who was that that said, shall reign over us? They're like, hey, we want to chop them up and make them into fish bait, Saul. Could we do this today for you? Some people didn't. Saul might not have brought it up, but the people around him didn't forget there was still some opposition toward his kingship. And, And so it goes on. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He said, let's not mistaken or get confused over who gave us the victory here, first of all. Because if I didn't have the victory, I wouldn't be getting exalted and the victory came from God. Therefore, don't exalt me. And if you're not exalting me, we don't have to put together these other people. Now, let me keep reading. Then Samuel said to the, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go up to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So that the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. 
There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and his men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And what Saul did here was really pretty amazing because he gave these people who opposed him a second chance. And that's the great wisdom of any good leader most of the time. And I say most of the time because it's not universal. But he gives them mercy. You know, as you look through Scripture, you see all the time how, how, how God shows us what he does in the same way with men around us. And he gives them mercy. They deserve to be dragged out and chopped up and made to fish bait. And so the question becomes this for us today. What do we deserve? And so when there's an offense against us or something goes sideways, how do we respond? Do we manifest the grace and the mercy that's been given to us, to those about us? And it's just a question. They acknowledge the victory, and it's a great day in Israel. So what's the line that jumps out? The, actually, I'm going to give you the, the well... What's the line? Is there a line that we've read through that says, wow, there, there's the top of the mountain peak? And one might say that it was the Spirit of God that rushed upon Saul when he heard the words. And you would say, well, that changed. That completely changed Saul. It inspired him. It gave him wisdom. And it gave him courage. And he went out and did everything he needed to do. But Saul wouldn't have been able to take over the Ammonites. And so the line I would submit to you was this. The line was, and then the, then the dread or the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And this is the line. It didn't affect one man. It affected one nation. And that's the game changer here. So I want to just break down in closing the fear of the Lord, how, how we're called and commanded to fear God. Psalm 96.4 says this, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. And it's interesting there's competition there between gods. One, one of which might be myself. Psalm 33, 8, let the earth fear. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all his people of the world revere him. Would you like some wisdom today? Psalm 110, verse 10 tells us this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. You want, you want some knowledge? Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want the Lord to watch over you? I did a word search on the fear of the Lord. I hit the mother load. You're like, wow, there's something going on in this book when it comes to the fear of the Lord. It's like three pages of stuff, and I just started stealing it. So you want, you want the Lord to watch over you, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Really? On those whose hope is on his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep alive in famine. You want something? We can, we can train this to others, by the way. Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I think this morning we're learning about the fear of the Lord. And it isn't something just in the Old Testament. You go, ah, oh, it's all the Old Testament. It's no, no. Skip that. Write it off. Acts chapter 9, 31, we read this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. That's not a Sunday morning message. Let's live in the fear of the Lord. You want to grow your church? Live in the fear of the Lord. It's actually biblical. Isaiah prophesying of Christ said this. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, a son having a fear. But go back to those levels. What level do you think Jesus had with his father? And it was the third level. In Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross. One of the criminals hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. 
But the other criminal rebuked him. What did he say? Don't you fear God? And if there's no fear of God, there's no fear of eternity. Boy, that's that's not a good way to end this life, wearing those shoes. You want protection, Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You want long life or at least a good life? The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. You want to live life to the fullest, Psalm 1427. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. You want quality of life? Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. You want to avoid evil through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. This is interesting. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. That's an interesting thing. You want to be blessed. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. And you see, the fear of the Lord doesn't change something. The fear of the Lord changes everything. And maybe that's a prayer we could pray this morning. Lord, let me simply live in the fear, the fear of who you are. The fear of the Lord profoundly affects how we live as Christians. Again, it doesn't change something. It changes everything. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that Uh, You are holy, you are mighty, you are righteous, you are pure, you are exalted, you are the King of kings. And Father, I pray that you would grow us, those in my midst, in your likeness and image, that that we would find that place in that third traditional level where where there would be a, a relationship where we see who you are in perspective of your holiness and great greatness. Um, We thank you so much that you can take us there any way you like. Um, I pray you would help us um, to be a people that that would fear you truthfully. And and that um, we just thank you so much for your grace that's in the midst of this fear um, and for your love that flows from the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.